What happens when you're up there, like at 3,000, 4,000 meters? That's scary. You don't want to know it. <laughs> Hi, I'm Alex, and welcome to the X Health Show, where I talk to visionaries behind the latest innovations in healthcare for the extra health of the future. We're in Neuchâtel, Switzerland, a sweet sandstone townhouse where doctors' offices were turned into a startup headquarters. My guest today is Dr. Joseph Sola, biomedical engineer, scientist, and co-founder and CTO at Actia. He's one of these people that managed to align their life and work priorities quite early in their career. I guess this fueled him to work for 16 years in optical blood pressure monitoring research and continues in a startup. His Actia sells now technology that allows patients to control their hypertension effectively, a bracelet that monitors blood pressure 24 by 7. You'll hear about hypertension, why hypertensive patients don't follow doctor's advice, continuous blood pressure monitoring, prototypes, trials and error, and even blood pressure monitoring history that involved, um, horses. Joseph, you just surpassed 10 million blood pressure data points in your database. What does it mean? It is 100 million, indeed. So it's 10x. What it means? It means that uh, we have a device being used by people. And we have a device being loved by people. It was 85 million just a couple of months ago or like a month ago? Yeah, about a month ago. Yeah. So why did it grow so fast? So we started a startup putting this device in the market about one year and a half ago. And people started buying it. Those that needed continued using it. And more people came in. So every day, now while speaking with you, every day there are just, there are just new more people coming in, people still using it. So the amount of readings that come in our servers that just continue to exponentially increase. They just grow up and up, which means that the device just gets better for everyone. What are the data points? A data point is a measurement that is being performed on the wrist of a user. So we have these patients and users buying the device, wearing this bracelet on the wrist, and they just get their continuous measurement of blood pressure coming over the day, over the night. And they just come to the app every day, normally in the morning or the evening. They just come to the app and they want to see how their blood pressure is behaving. And then they take actions based on that. So a data point for us is a one single measurement done on a real patient somewhere somewhere out there on their blood pressure. We have one such patient just here. So you are wearing That's the me. Actia bracelet on yourself. And guys, for you, it's like a black watch strap, basically. Oh, don't call it watch. No. no. <laughs> So How would you call it? So mine is black, but we have several we have several colors. Ah. So it's a bracelet. We don't want to compete against watches. We are in Switzerland. <laughs> okay. The yeah. space is crowded enough. No, so our goal is not to compete with those watches. Our our goal is to have a device that is also on the wrist, can be on the same side as a watch or on the other on the other side. It's a it's a bracelet worn by people that is just simply there. So those people they acquire it. They start wearing it and they forget about that. And whenever they need to take any action on their blood pressure, 
change medication, go to the physician to change medication, start doing yoga, changing diet, changing physical exercise, they will simply go to the app and see what happened on the last one day, one week, one month. Right. So you have your watch on one wrist and your bracelets, several of them, on the other wrist, right? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> okay. uh, we tend to have several bracelets here, people working in Actia, trying to improve them. Okay. So can we check on your data points? Like wh wh what data can we actually see from this uh, bracelet? Absolutely. So um, people, they don't see what I'm showing you, but mainly what it is, I just opened the app and I'm showing you the app of my last today readings. Okay. So mainly what you would see is that uh, since midnight, I was supposed to go sleeping. So when you go sleeping, normally if you are a healthy individual, your blood pressure sh should just go down. That's when your heart will start relaxing. So normally when you go to sleep, your blood pressure should go, should go down, should stay down until you wake up. Mm -hmm. So if you look at my, my graph now, what you'll see is that at, at midnight, my blood pressure was, was still very high or pretty high. It didn't go down until 2 a.m. That's when I, when I went to sleep. That's what happens when you have so a startup. So you work, basically, Correct. right? And you see that at 6 a.m. it goes up again. Mm -hmm. So mainly what it's saying is that today I had about two hours of what's called night dipping. I had, had two hours while during my heart could relax, blood pressure went down, the arteries could relax to get ready for the next day. And this, I mean, I'm a healthy individual, uh, but for those that are changing their or adapting their lifestyle or changing the medications going to the physicians, this kind of information can help them to decide when, by instance, taking the drugs. So if you know that you went to bed at 10 p.m., but your blood pressure didn't, didn't go down until 1 a.m., probably the time where the medication was taken to lower the blood pressure was not the right one. So now physicians, based on this data, data they can start adapting which medication and when this medication needs to be provided to the, to the patients. So let's go back a bit to the report that you, you're holding in your hand. What's that? What are, what are the, the data? Or what, are, what, okay. what is the information? Let's go to the basics. So we all have a heart. Hmm. And this heart goal is to give pressure in the blood of the arteries. And that's important because this will make your brain to have enough oxygen and this will keep you alive. Now, we as humans, we tend to be badly designed. And as we get older, our blood pressure will go higher and higher and higher. And this at some point will be damaging for the arteries of the brain, of the heart, of the kidneys, everywhere. So some people, they are better designed and their blood pressure will stay st stable until very elderly. But it happens to be that more than half of the adults, when they go above 40 years old, their blood pressure will go too high. There are two numbers of blood pressure. They are called the systolic blood pressure and the diastolic blood pressure. So when you go to the physician, they will put you a cuff around your arm that will measure those numbers and they will tell you two numbers, 130 over 90. All right. So, so that's the systolic. Systolic and is 140 and the 90 is diastolic. Now there are some guidelines which depend on each country on where these numbers should be. But in general, is that the lower, the better. So they shouldn't go above 140, by instance. So what we are doing is that we are continuously measuring those numbers. So in your life, as I said before, when you go to bed, these numbers should go down. When you wake up, they should go up. Now, during the day, as you get stressed, as, as you do physical exercise, they will go up and down. 
Now, how up and down they go and how much of the time they are above that threshold of risk, that's the important thing. So what we do as startup is that we deploy devices and services to the users via the app to help them to manage their hypertension. So we help them to manage getting those numbers low. And the curve that is in the report, is it this high blood pressure or low or both of them in one point or other two curves? Basically? What I'm showing to you now is that yeah. two curves are being shown. Right. So we are measuring the systolic and the diastolic. Okay. And we showed and we can do we do this day over day, night over night for everyone. Let's go back to this 100 million blood pressure data points. What can you see there? That's a fantastic question. So just to give you an idea, until one year ago, the lar largest data set that existed on blood pressure in the real life was about 1,000 data points. In the world, you're in speaking? In the world. <laughs> there was one data set that was done two years ago that went up to less than 10 million data points. Now we are already exceeding the 100, the 100 million data points. What do we see there? To your point, we see patterns. We see different behaviors based on different kind of people. We see different behavior based on different countries. Hmm. So now we know that in countries like Germany, the pattern of dipping of blood pressure when people they go to sleep is not the same overall than in Switzerland. What are the differences? It's probably sociological. It's probably based on habit. It's based on how much and how you eat, at what time you eat. But there are clearly patterns that are still starting to pop up on how differently the blood pressure of different populations they behave. So is it, for example, like in, in Switzerland, the, the blood pressure at night is higher or lower in comparison with Germany? Uh, we are going to publish this soon. I don't want to just break okay. the scoop here. Well, we can say, just to give one example, uh, I've tested this myself a lot and people here in the company, they, they test it. What we do in Switzerland, we eat cheese fondue. Hmm. So it's very clear. We call it the cheese fondue effect. Okay. You wear the active bracelet, you go, out, you, you go out with friends to take a cheese fondue and you will see that that night, your blood pressure will not go down. Because of the very hard digestion of the cheese, during that night, that night, the blood pressure will just stay high, which doesn't matter. It's not too bad. But if your uh, diet habits, they contain too much fat, by instance, you will be forcing your body to be at high blood pressure night overnight over several months, years. And that's the thing that will create a cardiovascular risk at the end. So to your questions, we see a lot of different patterns based on age, based on gender, based on body mass index, so how much fat on your body you have, based on physical activity, based on... And all those kind of things were not available until now. And now we can start providing hints and advices to those people how to make their cardiovascular risk to go lower. So let's say that you were the bracelet. Your data goes to... Actia Cloud, I can imagine. Correct. What, what happens there? So first of all, the data will go into a secured data cloud where it will be stored. The data will be processed to provide you, you particularly as a person, a feedback on your blood pressure. So now you can act on yourself. 
And the data will be also stored in a different server in a completely anonymized way so that we can use it to create this kind of population analysis. So on your side, and the first one that will take a benefit of this data is yourself. Now, I mean, you know that in the market, there are already these heart rate monitors on the wrist. Take any smartwatch, you can measure heart rate, which is fantastic, but anyone could measure heart rate alone. You just put your fingers on your neck or mm. you put your fingers on your wrist and you can feel, is my heart going too quick or too slow? For blood pressure, there is nothing like that. So you and we are all living with, your, uh, with our own blood pressure day over day, but we have no way to feel if it's too high or too low. Now, can you imagine if we start giving you at every time that you knew you want it, a feedback on, is this too high or too low? So now you can think, okay, it's too high, but probably I, was, I wasn't doing any exercise for the last one week and I was eating every night a cheese fondue. This can explain it. But if we don't give you that data, you don't know what you need to change. Right. So I had this episode like a, a couple of months ago, like I felt like ah, there's something with my blood pressure, you know? Mm -hmm. And what I did, I was, I was basically checking my blood pressure with this electronic cuff mm -hmm. monitor. Yeah. So basically you need to take it out and, and put it on yourself. I mean, I can imagine like if someone has continuously issues with hypertension, this can be problematic. And like each time you need to sit down, you need to put it in the right Place, right. And it will only measure when you do that measurement. Mm. But your blood pressure is not only that moment. Your blood pressure is something that changes continuously. So the only way to get a real idea of whether it's too high or too low is to have this kind of what we call 24-7 measurement. Mm -hmm. We don't need to measure continuously. We don't need to measure at every second. We just need to have enough measurements during the day and during the night to give you a feedback saying, look, something seems to be going wrong. Now it's time to go see your physician and change medication or start having a more healthy diet or do more exercise. And you can start, you can start playing with each of those and you will see how, which of those interventions will really lower your blood, your, your blood pressure. Who is it for? Because I can imagine, I mean, it's for everyone, right? We can say for everyone who wants to know about their body, right? If, if someone's curious about, you know, the quantified self, yeah. right? But I can imagine you devise it for, you know, some people in mind. So all the quantified self people, they were the first one buying the device, hmm. which is cool. It's fine. But those are not the people that need it more. So who is it for? It's for everyone who is becoming or on the way to become hypertensive or who is already hypertensive. Hypertensive means someone who has been diagnosed with too high blood pressure, which just to give you an idea, 50% of the adults are. Hmm. So 50% of the adults above 50-something years old, they go into the hypertensive space. So each of those, they will be living with that. It's fine. And they will be 60, and they will still be hypertensive if they don't do anything, anything which is fine. When they will go to the 60+, plus or 70, that's where strokes will start. Heart attacks will start. So the sooner these people, they start managing and empowering themselves to change and to lower the blood pressure, the less the risk of that stroke happening at the 70s will be. So it is for everyone who has gone above the 50s, 40s, 50s, and want to start managing the blood pressure. World data says the number of people with hypertension is 
growing and growing continuously, right? Mm -hmm. like how many people are there now in the world? It's over one billion people which are hypertensive. And what's scary is not the number of people hypertensive. It's the number of people that which are hypertensive but are not under control. And this one is increasing even more. So uh, we are all getting older. So the population is just getting older. Our lifestyle, it's in most countries, not improving in terms of cardiovascular health. So the amount of people that are going not under control in high blood pressure is just increasing, which will have a dramatic impact in 15 years from now. So if we don't start now taking advantage on the fact that we can control blood pressure and doing it, the consequence will be 15 years from now, where the amount of strokes and heart attacks will just exponentially increase. And what do you mean by not under control? They don't go to a doctor to check their check on their hypertension or... It can be two things. First is that most patients which are hypertensive, they are not aware they are. So that's to your point. People, which is a lot, that they don't know they are hypertensive, so they don't do anything. The second one, which is even more scary, is people that are aware, but they don't really care. Hmm. And that, that's why hypertension is called the silent killer. So it's a, a disease that is on ourselves, but we don't feel it. So they have been diagnosed once hypertensive by one physician, but since on the daily life, it doesn't change anything on their behavior, they don't want to change that behavior. So they don't care. So they don't take any action. And 15 years around, uh, after that, they, they will have the first cardiovascular event. So hypertension, there are two components of it. Hmm. One of it is genetics. Some, some people, we are more ready to be hypertensive, like myself. I know from, from my family. So there is a family history of hypertension. Hypertension means that the likelihood that you will be hypertensive is higher. But the second component, it's lifestyle. There are dozens of things that we can do to go back to a healthy life, very easy, healthy life that will prevent hypertension. And those, these are the preventive part. So we can easily start as humans being over 40, 50 to do those things, which are very easy. So if, so if no one is telling us, look, you should be doing them because you are really going to the right, red side of things. You are becoming hypertensive. If you're not being told that, there is no reason why you would do that thing. You know that I was actually on the island where there are no strokes and no coronary heart diseases. You know, that's in the Pacific Islands, on Trobriand Islands. Whoa. And actually, that's the place where some medical doctors did some research, you know, and that's the lifestyle, you mm -hmm. know, that feeds into this these healthy habits. Mm -hmm. So these are people who, you know, they eat a lot of tubers, so like potatoes, sweet potatoes, yam, cassava, you know. Then there's like, during the day, fruit. Sometimes fish, not mm -hmm. too, not too many, not too much. And, uh, yeah. And in the evening again, tubers, right? And physical work, loads of physical work. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. mean, people are like really, you know, they are muscle, muscles, you mm -hmm. know, and, and bones basically. And it works. Mm -hmm. But that being said, this will not work for everyone. And for sure, there are some people on that community that are, that are also hypertensive because they have this genetic, 
uh, bias to be hypertensive. No, but this is what I'm saying. The, the doctors who did some research there, you know, uh, they didn't find them. Okay. Stroke, th th that's quote unquote, stroke and ischemic heart disease appear to be absent in this population. So we should all move there. <laughs> so, yeah, so there, there are so many factors that play a role in our hypertension that we cannot control of all of them. That island, that's an amazing one. I didn't, didn't know that case. But us here in Switzerland, there is a mixture of things, which is genetic and which is behavioral. So let's start looking at them and let's start finding for each particular person out there, which is the thing that he or she can do to start getting under, under control. And there are a lot of things. We just need to inform people, look, you started doing this thing and that intervention really worked for you. Yeah, so, so let's keep doing that. Yeah, so exactly. Was it that meeting during the day or was it the fondue in the evening, right? Yeah, that's it. Oh, I mean, if you go to, today to the physician and he's telling you, look, you start to become hypertensive, you should do, he will give you a list of 12 things to be done. Stop smoking, stop alcohol, stop eating too much fat, uh, do exercise, uh, do uh, yoga, blah, blah, blah. A lot of things. You will never do that. And you will, know, will not, you will not know which of those, if it works, was the one that worked. So uh, we just see with data, control of blood pressure is getting worse because people, they are not empowered by them self how to manage that thing are you speaking about your research right like how do people actually control or not control correct you know, it's part their... of our research is part of also international research on the same topic the lack of control today of blood pressure is mainly due to the lack of awareness and the lack of engagement so physician uh, so patients they are being diagnosed they're being said do these dozen things and take all those pills and then they are left alone for one year at home. How on the hell these guys, they will do all those things. They will need to change their life. They will not do it. So why, why they wouldn't, you know, it's, it's because it's they don't feel it. They just mm. don't feel it. Mm. I, I mean, when you go into the diabetics kind of world, it's different. If you don't treat your glucose with insulin right now, you will faint. So there is a reward for, to you to do the right thing now. An immediate one. Correct. For hypertension, uh, hypertension, which the final damage is as worth as it is, because in 10 years from now, you might be dying. But today, there is no reward for you to do it. Apart from in one year from now, your physician may be blaming you because you didn't take the tablets that you need to take. So what uh, that, that, that's really the hypothesis behind Actia. We want to provide day-to-day -day feedback to every hypertensive patient to keep them engaged and empowered in whatever they do to maintain their blood pressure at low levels. Is it for patients only or can they share it with their physicians? It's for both. So the, the, the target number one is the patient. He's the one living with his or her body. He's the one that needs to take care of that body. And he's the one that needs to be rewarded by something good that did on his or her body. But then... For those that became really patients, which are really hypertensive, at some point, if the change of lifestyle didn't work, they will need to go to the physician and get under drugs. So uh, that's the interface where the physician needs to step in and needs to get the data presented in a way that he or she can start treating the patient. So to your point, it's for both. But the first interface and where 80% of the things will happen is the patient. 
you were mentioning he or she. Do you see in your data the users are mostly men or women? How is that divided? Uh, today, what we see as a trend is that there are more male than female getting the device. How does it translate to the um, cardiovascular diseases? A lot. So male, we tend to be. I'm going to try to be politically correct. We tend to be genetically worthy design. So male, we tend to go into hypertensive status early than female. So there is a more, there is a higher awareness of hypertension among male than female. And that's why most, not most, but there, is, there are more men buying our device than, than women today. This episode is brought to you by The Exhale Show and me. So if you like this podcast, be generous, hit follow, leave a review. That'll help me invite more such amazing guests for you. Thank you. How did you get into optical blood pressure in the first place? That's a long story. <laughs> <laughs> It started a long time ago, right? <laughs> yeah, in my case, I started working on this almost 20 years ago. So I'm, I'm coming from a family of hypertension history. So most of my uh, family has been, and is still today, under drugs. So I was really exposed to that problem. I know what it is. And I know the fair, how anxious they were to one week before going to the physician because they knew they didn't take the drugs as they had. <laughs> so the blood pressure was still too high and they would be blamed for that. So since a child, I've been exposed to that. And then, then there was also this uh, white coat hypertension at the doctor's office, right? Yeah, <laughs> so. e even at home. So I, I could see my mom getting just nervous, thinking about she was going to take the device from that cupboard, put it on the table. She was already stressed and panicking just because of the fact that she had to measure her blood pressure. So I've, I've been living with that, which happens in most families since a child. Then I moved in, in, into engineering. I moved into, into telecommunications, um, uh, signal processing. And at some point I decided, what could I do to take those techniques that are well known in signal processing? So treatment of data for antennas and for radio communications for my family. So that's where I moved into a Swiss center of research, which is called CSEM in Neuchâtel where they were starting this kind of using optical sensors for new things. That was far before any smartwatch existed, really far before, that was in 2004. But that group at CSEM were starting to explore what those sensors, if ever, could be used to manage cardiovascular things. So they already were thinking about uh, cardiovascular diseases. Yes, that was a highly pioneering work done here in Neuchâtel in the 2000s. So you, you basically found them or you, someone like a professor told you about them because you were uh, searching? I was literally looking, literally looking for research groups that were working in cardiovascular new things hmm. close to the Alps because I wanted to get close to the Alps. So I found Neuchâtel and I, these guys had a lot of publications somewhere uh, about, about early use of optical sensors for cardiovascular things. So I just contacted them. I got my, my position here. So I came here in 2004. And that's how I started working on this. And I read that the first research was about fingertip and the chest. Yeah. Yeah. Why there? 
So look, but by then, again, there was no smartwatch available. So now it's some, it's, it's kind of obvious. Let's go to the wrist. By then we had no clue. So literally what we did is that we filled ourselves first with sensors at everywhere. So we just think any part of your body. So we tried to attach optical sensors there. And we tried to get first data sets on which of those parts could even have any relevant information. So could could we go one step back? Like what the, how does the technology work? Right? Uh-huh. With the, the, the optical technology. What's it called? How does it work? Okay, the name is a pretty difficult one. So it's called PPG, which stands for photopletismography. You don't need to repeat that. <laughs> Thank you. So mainly what we do, it's the same thing you get in any smartwatch today. Uh, what we do is that we have a very small light source. It's called an LED that is it's injecting light into your skin. It doesn't hurt. You don't feel anything. So this light goes into the skin. This light will find arteries into the skin that will be pulsating, so changing the diameter at every heartbeat. And some of this light will manage to go out of the skin again. And then we capture that that light. So every time that the light has found that artery pulsating, it will change its intensity, its color. It will change a lot of things. So when we capture that light back from the skin, we will see the things that the artery has done to that light. So the light basically is bouncing back and yeah. it's changed after that. Correct. It's, it's called backscatter. So it goes down uh, back to the skin and it has changed its amplitude and its color. And out of the analysis of the change of amplitudes of col- and colors, we can get a lot of things like blood pressure. Okay. So you started at the chest and the fingertip and you were looking all over the body. How did you end up at the wrist and why? Okay. The, that's a fantastic one. This thing and this photopletismography technique w- could work everywhere, literally. Now, that's where the difference between academics and startups or industry come. So we could have a perfect sensor placed somewhere at the chest, by instance, or at the forehead. Now, would you ever wear a sensor on the forehead? <laughs> like a band. <laughs> Correct. You would not. <laughs> You would never do that like a bat. No, you would, you would not. So that, that's where applied research and then going into a startup mode plays a role. So we decided to optimize which will be the perfect location of a sensor that could provide accurate information and, most importantly, people would be willing to wear. And... The most obvious thing, and all the research we did was obvious, the result is that the wrist is the best place. It's a kind of a real estate problem because the wrists are being used for other things, like wearing a watch. Mm. But still, we can ask to anyone on the street, and we see it with our data, to wear a bracelet. And it's easy. And they will use it for years, as we see with our data. But we could not ask them to have a device on the chest every day and every night for the next 20 years. They will not do it. So we did a compromise in what's the best place that people are willing to use or to wear a device on, and that still provides the relevant information to manage their blood pressure and provide data to the physician. And that one is clearly the risk. So you did the research for like, how many, like 15 years? That and then you 15 or 16 years, yes. Yeah, and then you decided it's ready. We've got the product, like, yeah, what, what was that time? 
Like, why? It wasn't you? exactly like that. No, huh. so l l l let me change the perspective. So we had, after 14 years of research, the first hints that this could work. And we started pitching this around. What we saw is that, so we literally went to all big biotech company. As a Swiss research institute, we wanted them to take license to those technologies. What we got from an answer from them is that we don't need that. There are already devices which are these cuffs available. We don't need that. It's fine. But a cuff is something else, isn't it? Right? Yeah. But for, from their perspective, and that, this is the problem with the, these legacy companies and institutions that they, they were already in the market. They already have, they were selling devices. They didn't want to break through that thing. They didn't want to change the, 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 the domain. So what we saw is that we knew this had a huge potential. We knew this, is, this was feasible, but no one really cared about it. But every time we discussed with patients, because we had clinical trials ongoing, they were all like, wow, can I take this at home? Can I use it? <laughs> and we're like, you know what? It's still not commercial. We cannot give it to you out of the clinical trial. So there was this, this, this mismatch between the patients that wanted to use it and the big biotech or medtech company saying, we don't want to deploy this. We don't need it. So at that point, we decided, okay, let's take it ourselves. Let's put it away from the research institute. Let's get venture capital money into that so we can grow at the speed it should grow. And let's, let's start a startup. And that's how Actia started. Actia started as a decision to let's take the potential of this technology and make it as big as it can be. How did the the product change during the the, the research years? Oh, so or it, how did the, the bracelet maybe change? I don't know. It was not even a bracelet at the beginning. So uh, I said we started at the chest, at the forehead, at different parts. I don't want to name all so of them. So these were like bands, right? Bands, yeah. patches, things that were really attaching to the skin. Hmm. The first one that we had at the wrist, we call it Shrek. <laughs> because it was big and ugly. <laughs> and green. <laughs> uh, yeah, and it was shining green light. We have one of those on the office. I can show you as for words. So it's still, we, call, we still call it a Shrek. It was very huge and you could only use it for one day. No, half a day. Then the battery was off. So they were not commercial devices. They were just prototypes. And we tested about 20, 30 of them. Then when we started acting as a company, then our, the mission of the team that we started building here was to let's take the basic things of that bracelet and reduce them to the minimum amount that can, that needs to be used for a real device. And that's how the bracelet become smaller, smaller and smaller. Uh, were you also reducing features available on the device? Or? Correct. So mm. we really went to the very basic. Uh, since we started the company, let's say every day we get inbound messages from physicians and different groups saying, oh, can you also measure this? And can you measure this and that and that? And the answer is, yes, we can. Because it's optical sensing, the PPG can measure a lot of things. But we will not. Mm -hmm. So the hypertensive space, and that's something for startups very important. This space is so big and the problem is so unsolved that we prefer to focus on one single and unique thing. Let's measure blood pressure right, then dispersing. Because we are really being pulled in any direction every day. But 
the only way we can survive and do the things right is to focus on one single and unique thing. And that's how we really reduce everything else, remove any feature, reduce any part of the electronics of the device that was not for blood pressure and have a final device that can be used in real life. Wasn't it tempting to to have more? And like, what could that be? So to the first part of your question, yes, it's tempting every day. I mean, I'm still a researcher, so I still want to try that because it's so cool. Let's, but we have a limited number of hours per day. I showed you my, my blood pressure curves last night. We don't sleep a lot. Right. We have a limited group. So we better focus them on doing one thing right than dispersing. So at the end, we'll see what we can do in the future. But as for today and for the next many, many years, until we manage to deploy at the humankind scale this technology so that we can reduce the burden of hypertension, we'll only focus on that. You mentioned that you wanted to move closer to the Alps. Why? Oh, that's a personal thing. But I love climbing. I love skiing. I love these kind of mountain activities. So I wanted to find a balance between, between doing research and being climbing out there. What happens? Because I'm pretty sure you're wearing the bracelet when you're climbing. What happens when you're up there, like at 3,000, 4,000 meters? That's scary. You don't want to know it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> so while climbing or, or, or skiing uh, is like doing sport here, close to the lake of Neuchâtel, your blood pressure will go up, which is normal. I mean, you do exercise, your muscles need more oxygen, so your heart will start pumping quicker, faster. That's what you feel with the heart rate but also the blood pressure will increase. The scary part is during the night. So during the night, as I said, your blood pressure should go down during the night. That's the way your heart can relax and can be ready for the next day. When you, when I am sleeping on a hut somewhere at 3,000 meters, or some, so, some of my friends or clients are up there with me, we have tried to measure with, with active bracelet the blood pressure. What happens? It doesn't go down. So it's all right up there. Yeah, I will I stay there. So, and that's, I mean, normally when we go in the Alps up to a hut, we stay there for one, two nights, three nights maximum. We don't stay for one week, two months. That's the thing that will happen if you go to the Himalayas, for instance, that you will be at very high altitude for very long term. And at every night, your blood pressure will not go down. And that's where hypoxic, so problems with lack of oxygen will start is that you will get into a different big problems that will force you to go down. By the way, you, you're speaking now about staying up in the mountains for the night, not going back down. Yeah, correct. So the, the thing is that you can have one night with your blood pressure, which is high, like eating a cheese fondue. This will not kill you, mm -hmm. at least not today. But if you repeat this every night of your life or for the next one month, something will start there. That's not good. So what we see, to your point, what we see is that using our bracelet, I see it on myself, is that every night I'm sleeping up there, my blood pressure will be as high during the night as if I have been eating a cheese fondue. Wow, that's scary indeed. The worst, then is your point, is what if you eat a cheese fondue in a hut? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> it will still go up. So really, your blood pressure will, it's very important. The night dipping thing is very important. You want your blood pressure to go down during the night. If it's not the case, you need to figure out what's the problem. And if you are in a hut, it's easy. Just go down. If you are at home and it never goes down during the night, 
you should find out what's the problem there. Okay. Now, where is it available, Actia? You said you started expanding, mm -hmm. right? So where, where is it available now? And yeah, what are your plans? So literally now it's available in six or seven countries across so you, Europe. You already mentioned Germany, Switzerland. Switzerland, Germany, Austria, UK, Ireland, Italy. I think that's all. I'm not a commercial guy here. Um, now we're just expanding to more and more countries across Europe. And the thing is that we are still a pretty small company, so it just takes time to go expanding in each of the markets. But what we see, it's, it's very clear. In each market that we go, in each country that we go, the demand is so high that we cannot even follow it. So there is a clear attraction from the patients. They want to have this. So you sell it already online, right? And Now people... it's sold online. Yeah, mm -hmm. now it's more than enough. So we have our website. People they come to the website, they buy it there, they get it, they get it at home. Are there any challenges in introducing Actia device? A lot. Hmm. What are they? Okay, let's start with the first one. Uh, as I said before, patients and users they love wearing that. Yeah. So there's enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, there's from a lot the of traction there. Now the biggest challenge. So uh, patients, they want to wear it. Experts in hypertension, they love the idea. They love the idea that finally they could have patients engage and they could have this kind of continuous data. In the middle, so in between those patients and those experts, each of those in each country, there is the family doctor, the physician. Those, those elements of the chain they've been trained at med school using regular cuffs. So they have learned how to treat hypertensive patients measuring once a year. And that's what they know what to do. They do it as well as they can. That's, that's a huge difference. Once a year. And how many times a day can you do it with Actia? Normally, uh, we do it about 30 times a day. Yeah, so that's a huge difference. Uh, it's exponential difference. So... To your point, what's the best, the biggest challenge we have now? It's how can we best educate those people? So those physicians, family doctors, those that are interfacing with the patients every day to use this data. So there is a lot of clinical evidence that this more continuous monitoring makes sense. This comes from the experts. There is a lot of traction of users that they want to measure their blood pressure if they use an active device. But now, if the physicians, so those that will prescribe the medications, they still don't know how to use it, something is broken there. So the biggest challenge now on our side, I mean, not only Actia, all the companies working on this space, the biggest challenge is how we'll manage the quicker as possible to educate those family doctors how to handle this data and how to better make use of this to improve the cardiovascular outcomes of the patients. What do they measure uh, blood pressure with? What, what are the current devices they use? So most of the physicians, they still measure at the office. So imagine you are a person, you are a human being. Your blood pressure is changing continuously over one year. And now today you need to go to the physician. Today you will be sitting there in front of that guy with a white coat who will be putting a cuff, squeezing your arm. 
Do you really think that the blood pressure you will get there really represents your blood pressure of the last one year? Yeah, especially that I ate uh, fondue last <laughs> evening, right? <laughs> Correct. And you are extremely stressed. It's called the white coat effect hmm. because you will be extremely stressed. So to your question, they measured blood pressure using a cuff with them sitting in front of you and asking you to be quiet and relax. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, Just sit still, don't move, be and, quiet and, be and relaxed. relax. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the reality today. I mean, it's not their fault. That's the best thing they were provided some years ago. But now we know there are different ways of doing it. So our challenge is to convince them and to explain them or, or make them hear to the patient that there is a new way of doing that. And that new way will give, the, give them more insightful data. And how did we go actually, you know, from this mercury devices through electronic ones to the optical ones, like the, the, the history of measuring blood pressure. That's a fascinating, that's a fascinating one. So I will give you the two minutes summary because it can be very, very long. So everything started about three centuries ago when a monk, so a guy in France, in France decided to measure the blood pressure of, of, of a horse. A horse. A horse, yeah. So literally he put a, a glass tube, inserted into, into the artery of the horse. But there was, it was a very tall, a very long glass tube. And he saw that blood was coming, going up, but it didn't go, at some point it stopped. So he understood that there was a given pressure of, of the blood. If the pressure was infinite, it would just go out of the, of the tube, but it stopped at some point. So he started measuring the blood pressure of horses by looking at how high did the blood go up on that tube? So a horse with a higher blood pressure will, would have a tube with, which was filled higher up. Now, that was not very practical. So then he started changing. Instead of just getting the blood going up, he was putting mercury, which is a very dense material, into the tube. So then he started measuring how many millimeters of mercury the blood was going up. So, so that's why still today we measure blood pressure in a unit which is called millimeters of mercury. Because of that guy measuring blood pressure of horses, inserting tubes into the arteries of the, those horses. That was until, until the, until one century ago. Then the first calf started coming and those calves still needed a physician to do a measurement. So they were squeezing the arm of, of the patient and they were measuring with a stethoscope. So uh, with a device to hear the sounds of the arteries on the same arm. Now, this is how my grandmother was also measuring her uh, blood pressure. And that's still the gold standard today. So that's still how it's considered to be the most reliable way to measure blood pressure, which we kind of disagree. Then on the 80s, there were these new electronic devices that can, they are still squeezing your arm, but they, you can use this alone at home. So you don't need to go to the physician. So if you are engaged enough, you could measure this every day at home, at least once a day. And then the next chapter is our chapter. It's a chapter of calfless. We call it calfless, so without the calf. Calfless optical devices. And this started about 20 years ago at the first commercial devices. Indeed, the first one in, in Europe today is the active device, which was less than two years ago. How much are you worrying about competition? I would is it, love is it, is to it... have competition. So look, as I said... Our problem is not market traction. We have a lot of market traction. Our, our problem is to convince and to educate the physicians to start using it. But doing it alone is a very difficult task. So we'd love to have 10 more competitors now in the market, but no one has ever figured out how to do it yet. 
So, so it's not too crowded. <laughs> it's not crowded at all. We are alone. So we are literally alone selling devices, what we call over-the-counter, so everyone can buy them in Europe today. There is no one else. So we'd love to have the, a lot of them. Now, um, yeah, competition will come at some day, hopefully, and we'll just share the space. So there is over 1 billion patients around this world. So I think there is enough space for everyone here. Well, what are the next steps then for Actia? You mentioned publishing the paper. Oh, we have a lot of papers to be published. <laughs> <laughs> you, you already published a lot of them, right? We just publish a lot. We continue to publish a lot of papers. And, and we are publishing a lot of papers on how we validate and we make sure that the device performs uh, properly. But now, when you think about how many tens or thousands of data points come to our servers every day, and you think about how much insights on understanding blood pressure are coming to us. I can imagine you employing more researchers. Correct. So we should be 200 uh, scientific writers now preparing papers. It just, it's becoming so huge. So the next steps for us to your question is we want to continue to deploy to make sure that as much and as many patients that need it, they have the device today in, on their wrist. And we need to continue to educate the in-the-middle physicians, so the family doctors, how to use these to treat their patients better. And uh, the papers that, that are you going to, to publish, can you like you know say something about the, the upcoming ones? You will need to wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's our scoop. So we have a, a backlog of papers, of data coming. You will see. J just keep tracking our website. So we keep putting everything in there. It's actia.com. And, and Actia is spelled with double I, right? Yeah, it's A-K-T-I-I-A.com. And that's where we also push all the papers. So we, we invest a lot of our resources, money, into those scientific dissemination activities because we think it's important. And that's so cool. So we are literally, we are literally having and creating a new corpus of scientific data that didn't exist in the past. So it's very cool to be the first ones to use that data and look at ourselves our bodies in a different perspective. That's fascinating. And uh, Joseph, thank you very much for this fascinating conversation. Thanks to you. And yeah, um, I'm looking forward to reading the papers. <laughs> of course, just keep tracking us. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm totally impressed by the audacity of researchers turned startup founders, doctors turned entrepreneurs or ordinary parents turned healthcare innovators. People battling the battles that no one fought before for the extra health of the future. So if you see a startup posting on LinkedIn, show them some love, hit like, comment, that's fabulous. If you have a couple drops more of that altruism, follow the X-Health show, leave a review here. I'll be able to bring more of these visionaries to you. So a big thank you. You're awesome. See you next week. The information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. If you have any medical questions, please consult your healthcare practitioner. The opinions on the show are Alex's or her guests. The podcast does not make any responsibility or warranties about guest statements or credibility. While the podcast makes every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate, please let us know if you have any comments, suggestions, or corrections. <laughs>